The following program is part two of two parts, each 90 minutes long. There is support material available at this website, including quizzes, handouts, and lecture outlines for all presentations. Consult the UCTV programming guide for the date and time that other lectures in the series will be shown. Since the state of California obviously is very concerned about the amount of water used by agriculture in general, a few years ago they uh, invested some money, good money really, and they did, uh, they come up with a very, very effective system which is a, a model in the world for that matter. Uh, they developed a system which is referred to as California Irrigation Management Information System. I think you should all be familiar with that system. California or CIMIS. How many of you have heard of this system before, by the way? A few. And how many of you have actually used it? Have you gone to the site and used it? Probably not. Okay. I think that would be something. I don't know if you're going to have a session on irrigation later or not, but they probably will talk about it. It's very important. What it is, is a network of, uh, I think right now they have about 350, 400 weather stations throughout California. Most of them are in Central Valley. And is obviously the main focus is for agriculture but we have them in urban areas too. These weather stations can measure evapotranspiration based on various climatic conditions. Solar radiation, wind velocity and directions, and uh, uh, net radiation, and uh, there are nine of them. Uh, and based on that, temperature, soil and air temperature and so on, based on that, that machine can actually measure the ETO, or evapotranspiration at that site, that information from all these systems end up here in Sacramento. Department of Water Resources have their center here to the CMS headquarters. And you can actually access that center anytime you want to using your uh, web, web uh, uh, internet and uh, find out what is the evapotranspiration or ETO from the closest weather station to your site. And use that to determine the amount of water you need. Now, you know, it may not be really necessary for a homeowner, but you can imagine farmers use it all the time. Very effective. In the Bay Area, many of our large golf courses, uh, cemeteries and so on, they use that information. In fact, uh, most of the golf courses these days are probably most efficient than anybody that I know of. Most of the irrigation systems come as a package with its own weather station and automated system. So they have their own weather station like that, measure the ET and based on that determine how much water is needed and uh, basically overrides the uh, controllers and they irrigate accordingly regardless of where they are. Toro, Rainbird, all, all the major irrigation companies have a system or a package like that. But you can uh, use that. Rate of application. After you have determined how much water is needed, how long you should run the system, then there is another factor you have to consider. And that is soil variation. Soils do not accept water at the same rate, and oxygen for that matter too. Uh, within the same neighborhood, lawns may have a totally different root zone mixes. Some of them are on just native soil, quite often heavy clay soil, and others could be heavily amended with organic matter or sand or something. 
So even if your climate is exactly the same and you have done your own work and the, the, your irrigation system applied, you have done all those things if you don't pay attention to the type of soil you have and whether that soil can absorb or accept the amount of water you are running based on the information from that leaflet, then still you, don't, you haven't done it. Uh, water obviously moves easier in sandy soils than it does in, on clay soils. In fact, generally, if you compare a clay soil to a sandy soil, you apply an inch and a half of water to a clay soil, first of all, it moves very slowly. Secondly, it will probably will not go deeper than about six, seven inches. Because as you know, clay soil can hold quite a bit of water. The same amount of water you apply to a sandy soil, or a heavily organically amended soil for that matter, so it's kind of a fluffy, that water can go as deep as about 23 inches deep. But the amount of moisture you have here is not the same as you have over there. Okay? That's why we tell people pay attention to keep the runoff to minimum. Especially if you're on a slope, you irrigate, the water that goes over here, it's gone. It's not going to be used by that crap. So even if you spend all your time and developing the uh, uh, irrigation regime based on what we just talked about, but half of that water is going into the street or the gutters, you haven't done it. That gives you the information about the water needed for this grass as long as it stays within those confines. So you have to be pay attention to that. Or even if you don't have a slope, you irrigate, so the leaflet tells you, okay, run your system for 30 minutes every two days. And after 20 minutes, the water is standing everywhere and you have puddling. That's not good either. Most of that water is eventually going to evaporate. Grass is not going to use it. Whatever goes up in the air is not going to be used by plant. It's creating a very damp environment, very susceptible to uh, traffic uh, compaction. Soil is wet. Grass is not happy. There's not enough oxygen for at least a couple of hours for that grass. And you have provided a very nice, damp, cool, wet environment for a certain group of organisms which they love it. What? Fungi. Fungi. And those are the, well, almost all the turf grass diseases in California are caused by fungi. And they like that. They all need moisture. Oh, they are very small ones. They are not mushrooms. Although you'll get mushrooms growing too in that case. So um, you, you want to prevent that. Not only because you want to reduce water waste, but also you want to provide a good environment for grasses to grow in. The best way you can deal with that is in addition to determining how long to run your system is to pay attention to this. So when you turn the irrigation on, after 20 minutes you see either runoff or puddling, turn it off. Wait until that water goes in infiltrate into the soil, and that may take 10 minutes, it may take 30 minutes. Then turn the irrigation on again, and finish the rest of the cycle. It's laborious, I know, but fortunately most of the new controllers, if you have irrigation, you know that, they have a cycling system. You can cycle them, you know, you don't have to put that 30 minutes all in one shot. As long as the occasion cover all that, which basically means that that 30 minutes you can do it throughout the day, you know, 10 minutes in the morning uh, and wait maybe another uh, 10 minutes, a uh, couple of hours later, something like that, cycle it. So all the water actually goes into the soil. 
it's impossible to totally eliminate runoff or totally eliminate pond. I know that. I mean, realistically, that is not possible. However, the more of those things you do, the better it would be for the grass, and obviously you will uh, not uh, waste water. And of course, these days, the runoff pollution and things like that, we want to uh, reduce that as well. If you have irrigated your lawn, and three hours later, you come and walk on the lawn, and you see your footprints, there is something wrong there. Very simple. That water is not going in. Maybe heavy clay soil, but more importantly, especially in the backyard lawn, is compaction, traffic. And we'll talk about that a bit later, how to deal with that. But again, aside from relieving compaction, uh, you also want to pay attention to your water cycling. Frequency, again, for most lawns, really, twice a week should be adequate, but certainly not more than every other day, which is three times. Don't irrigate every day. Because uh, uh, what, what happens is that if you irrigate every day, then you keep the, the top quarter of an inch, half an inch moist all the time, and, and the rest of the roots can't get enough moisture, and some of them die. You create a good environment for diseases and weed invasion and things like that. We talked about uniformity, extremely important. Next time you fly in the summer, look down and look at all those large fe uh, uh, fields of grass. You see all these donuts or those patches. Now, in a situation like this, it really doesn't make a bit of a difference how much time do they spend and whether they get it from CMS, from, from there. That irrigation system is not working properly. That system is, is a failure. It could be because of the bad design or not enough pressure, which, which is the case here, really. Uh, and, and, or maybe the wind is very high. So pay attention to that. Uh, and you have seen those on, on many... Uh, 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 fields that people, you know, on a sports field, it's very important. All those irrigation heads, as soon as one of those players run over them, uh, they can break them. And they have to be uh, uh, maintained on a regular basis. When you have a situation like that, for what, one reason or another, you don't have good coverage, then what happens? We're all humans. I would do exactly the same thing, and you would do probably. If you're in charge of this field, in the middle of the summer, you have a situation like this. What would you do if you were the, and your boss was on your back for, for not having a nice feel? What would you do? <laughs> That's one thing, but uh, yeah. Most of us will just run that system longer. Mm -hmm. Hey, if one hour is not enough, let's run it for two hours, three hours, <laughs> to put enough water here to green them up. <coughs> No, easy strategy, but what happens here around the heads? So, so that's why, especially on a sports field, around the heads, you have seen those mud bowls. That's exactly what happens, or something like that. You wait a little bit longer in the middle of the summer, the grass is all gone. On home lawns, of course, it's not as bad because you have uh, the area is not too large, and and you can actually maintain it. But one thing is. Uh, most of, even the, the best irrigation heads, they leak a little bit. They always leak a little bit. And when they come out, if you notice when the head goes off, and lots of water stands around them. Which means that the grass around the head always gets a little bit more water. And therefore it grows faster. Now if you're mowing frequently, that's okay. But if, like me, you don't mow it as frequently, that grass around the head can grow very tall. And when you have that tall grass growing around those heads, they interfere with the throw of the water. The head pops up, hits the grass, then jumps over, and you get those donuts, dry areas around the heads. Uh, 
This is again common in home lawns I've seen during the winter. We haven't been using our irrigation system. Things are growing, grassy weeds and so on and so forth, or they are broken. Next time you turn them on, that is the way they, obviously it doesn't make any difference whether you're talking about ET or anything else. If that area is not applying water uniformly, this area is going to go dormant first due to drought stress and eventually die. So maintenance uh, of irrigation head, whether you want to get really fancy and do a real water audit, that's what they do on military camps, you know, yeah. some of them. Uh, you can hire somebody to do that for you. But, you know, for a home lawn, you really don't have to, uh, to be that precise. And then the last thing which is very important is that you want to irrigate when it's cool, and that's usually in at night, late early in the morning, I should say, and then when there's no wind. The best time to irrigate, if it's possible, is between 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. That is the best window. Pressure is high, temperature is low, so you don't lose much water due to evaporation. And uh, most of that water moving to the soil, and by 10 o'clock, when the sun comes up, water evaporates from the leaves, and therefore you have reduced the chance of disease infestation. And obviously, you want to do it when there is no wind, because when there is a high wind, the irrigation is go everywhere. Okay, obviously, grasses, like all other organisms, they need water, obviously, and they need food. And uh, uh, it just happened that uh, we are very fortunate in California, especially for you in the valley. We have uh, really the best soil in the world as far as uh, growing plants are concerned, because your soils are well supplied with almost all the nutrients needed by, uh, uh, by, by most plants, uh, with the exception of a few which are needed by turf grasses and, uh, and for that very reason we have to pay attention to fertilization which is a form of feeding our grasses. A few things again I want to uh, cover in this area because your handouts are very well uh, uh, supplied with quite a bit of information on fertilization but a few things you want to be aware of. First of all, as you know we have uh, how many essential elements for green plants? Don't count them. Good, good, good. You know, those early days when I was pretty green and I was standing over here. How many essential elements we have? And they were like, one, two, three, four, four, 16 and everything. So now I'm just trying. Anyway, there are 16 elements which are, which are essential for all green plants. They're all not needed, not all of them are needed high quantities, but they're all needed to some extent. And in fact, believe it or not, there is one other element which apparently is going to be added to that list very, very soon. Anyone know what that element may be? Selenium. No? It would be added, obviously, somewhere around here. Believe it or not, I didn't read any plant physiology. I read it in Wall Street Journal from all places. Nickel. Apparently they have found nickel at a small, very small quantities in, in many, many plants and it is under review by somebody, I guess that is the Academy of Sciences or so on. And if they all agree, and of course that's going to take a while because they all have to write a few papers and get their brownie points and all, then it will be added to that. But anyway, it really has nothing to do with what we are talking about because our grasses are basically, all they want is nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium in our area because most of our soils are well supplied with almost all those elements. So practically, as long as we have nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, all the cooler, warm season grasses we talked about, they should do fine. Now, at times you may have some chemical problems with your soil, you know, high pH or low pH, that's a different story. 
if everything chemically is okay in the soil in terms of fertility, those are the only three elements that you need to supply. And that's why all the turf fertilizers you find anywhere, whether it's a dry form, granular, or, or bottles, or liquids, or whatever they are, they all will have nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium in them. It just happened that most of our soils, again your soils around here, are well supplied with phosphorus and potassium too. There are a few of the soils, the, the green uh, soils on the foothills, uh, from what I understand they may be deficient in phosphorus, but for all practical purposes uh, they are not really, uh, uh, it's not a kind of a crisis, uh, uh, and, and almost all the nitrogen, all the fertilizers available to us in the market have adequate amount of phosphorus and potassium in them. And really, for all practical purposes, the only thing you should be thinking about for lawns is nitrogen. Nitrogen. That is the material which is always deficient, almost always deficient in all the soils, and therefore you need to apply adequate amount of nitrogen. I'm not going to spend too much time on the type of fertilizers because you have a, another session all on fertilizers and so on, but very quickly for lawns, uh, you can, yeah, you can use your fast-acting types, ammonium sulfate, ammonium nitrate, and so on. Uh, or you can use your um, synthetic uh, slow-release ones, IBDU, urea formaldehyde, and also you can use some of the organic fertilizers. Practically, however, what I recommend to people is that don't pay too much attention to the names and the fancy. The cheaper, the better, really, because really all we want for lawns is nitrogen. And there is no reason to spend lots of money for very fancy fertilizers while your grass is going to use only nitrogen. There are many great fertilizers in the market, different sizes, different colors, different coatings, whether it's polymer coated, three polymer coated, sulfur coated. Those are all great, but they are primarily for a specialty type of grasses. Golf greens, lawn bowling greens, sports fields, and so on. So for, for lawns, basically, as long as you stay with the simple materials. Even some of the new composts that we have available, if, if the material is well composted, and if you are composting in your own backyard, and you are confident that you have composted, and you all know that has that word has a specific meaning. You're not talking about throwing some plant there as soon as they rot a little bit, that is compost. Unfortunately, many people think that way. But if you have done proper composting, temperature and so on, and you have killed all the weeds, and disease organisms, and the material is really, have been decomposed, there's nothing wrong with using that as a form of top dressing on your lawns, and accordingly fertilize a little bit too. Understanding that all compost or all organic fertilizers are fairly low in nitrogen. Maximum 4 or 5% nitrogen and something like that. As long as you know that, and then we talk about how much are needed, then you have to pay attention uh, to, to, uh, to make sure that the grass receives what it needs. A material like this, obviously, if it's uh, 5% uh, and you want to apply one pound of nitrogen per 1,000 square feet, you will need 20 pounds of that per 1,000 square feet. And they may, that may be enough to cover some of the grasses totally. And that's not practical. In fact, in large areas where they apply uh, compost to the lawns as a soil amendment conditioner or fertilizer, they apply it at very, very slow rates. It's not a matter of putting so much material on to cover all the grass. Because the amount of nitrogen needed by grasses is, uh, is very important to know. Um, uh, and I'll give you a table, and you already have in your hand that's how much nitrogen is needed by grasses. 
The best thing, of course, you always have to say this. If you're really unsure, you have bought a new property, you have moved from another area to here, your grasses, plants are not doing well, one of the best things you can do is to have your soil tested by a uh, laboratory, which is licensed to do that, agricultural laboratory, and they will give you some recommendations. They'll tell you whether you have any kind of a deficiency or not. And that's probably more important for other plants than it is for grasses. But we always say that that is a good thing to do. The majority of people don't do it and probably don't even need to do it as long as the soil has not been changed too much by either too much organic matter or other amendments. Most of our native soils are okay. And if that is fine, then this is the recommendation for nitrogen we have for various uh, types of grasses or uh, sites. For home lawns, uh, cool or warm season grass, annually you don't need to apply more than four to six pounds of actual nitrogen per 1,000 square feet. Okay? That is annual per 1,000 square feet. Uh, now you can imagine if uh, supposedly you are applying four pounds to your tall fescue and you apply, if you use compost or any other organic type of fertilizer, which by the way, there is nothing wrong with them, and if you want to go that way, that's actually environmentally better. But in order to get four pounds at 5%, you will need, 20, you will need 80 pounds per 1,000 square feet of those materials. Uh, first of all, you have to consider the cost, uh, and of course, if the cost is not an issue, is that how much of that material you can apply in one application. Um, obviously, you want to apply them at a small quantity, so uh, uh, they won't uh, cover the grass. For uh, Bermuda grass, for example, you can go to about six pounds of N per thousand square feet. Okay? Timing, best time to apply your fertilizer for cool season grasses is fall and spring. In fact, if you want to think about four application a year, which we recommend, and at each application, we don't recommend you apply more than one pound of actual nitrogen per thousand square feet. I'll give you four pounds per year. One application can be done on September 1st. Uh, another one at about October 15th. So that'll be for your fall. Another application on around March 1st, first couple of weeks of March, depending on rain and everything. And then another application maybe April 15th last two weeks of April. The reason we recommend applying fertilizers in fall and spring is for cool season grasses is that during that time of the year, soil and air temperature is just right for root development. As the temperature rises, you get more foliage growth and not as much root growth. Obviously, you don't want to put fertilizer just because you want to, you're not growing a crop, you know, you don't want to just put lots of food. So you want to do it when plants can use it and develop a root system. And if the grass, for example, in the spring develop a root system, deep root system, goes into the summer, they, uh, considering the heat and drought stress, they'll be able to deal with that much better than if you wait until you put your fertilizer down in the middle of the summer, July, August, which I don't recommend you fertilize at all, and during that time what happens is that most of that nitrogen will be used up, grass will green up and it will grow, but all that growth will be at the expense of your roots. Roots are limited, shoots are growing, they need more water, they need more nutrients, roots cannot produce it for them, it's another stress on the grass, okay? Um, be very careful 
especially during the summer, if you want to apply some fertilizer, and that may be needed sometimes. If, uh, for example, uh, you have not applied fertilizer adequate amount during the spring, uh, and the grass looks a kind of a yellowish, malnourished, uh, and you still want to put some fertilizer down, do it at a very, very small rate. Maybe about a quarter of pound of uh, nitrogen per thousand square feet. That will be adequate for you to get some greening effect, but not much growth. And be very careful what you apply. Some fertilizers, like urea, or anything has urea in it, they have a very high burning potential, as you may know. The middle of the summer, you put on your lawn, uh, especially at high rates, you can kill the lawn very simply. Just burn it. That's happened to this golf green, and I don't know if that superintendent ever went back to that job or not, but it can easily happen. So during the summer, be careful about what you apply. Now, for your warm season grasses, those of you who have Bermuda grass, you can apply fertilizer throughout the year. As long as the grass is green, Bermuda will love, it, love you for that. No problem. Um, but generally, we recommend about half a pound of actual nitrogen, nitrogen per thousand square feet per growing month on Bermuda grass. Technique. Very important, very much like irrigation. You know, every time, we, sometimes when I talk to people and they say the word lawn, you get a feeling that they're talking about a plant, you know, like a tree, a lawn, like the whole thing is one organism. It's not like that, you know. Every lawn is, we're talking about at least millions, maybe billions of individual plants growing next to each other. And if you are a fair owner, you have to treat all of them equitably and fairly and uniformly if you want to have a nice lawn. If you put too much water there, not enough here, it's not going to be a good lawn. The same thing goes for fertilizer, which basically means that a good technique is the one which will apply fertilizer as uniformly as possible all over the lawn. We'll treat each one of those individual plants uniformly and equally. Uh, many of us have this type of fertilizer applicators. We call them drop type fertilizer applicators. Uh, many of us bought them a few years ago when they came to the market. And many of us have them hung in their garage, they're rusting and everything. <laughs> Nobody wants to get rid of them. Have you noticed that? Who's going to use them? Anyway. Uh, and uh, they're great. They're actually, they work very well as long as they're not rusted, most, like most of us. They put the fertilizer down in, a, in an area, a swath between the two. Uh, uh, wheels obviously, they can be calibrated very nicely and so on. Uh, the only problem is that most people are in uh, such a great rush to do it that they forget that again that uniformity I was talking about. For example this uh, lady who lived uh, a long time ago. <laughs> long long time ago. Probably was in Berkeley too, I don't know. Um, um, what, 50s, 60s? I, I, wasn't a, I wasn't alive then, I don't know. I anyway, these are, have become fashionable again, have you noticed that? Yes. Some of us have taken it out of the you know, storage area, we wear them again because we want to be hip, you know. Uh, anyways, and those hill scarves, probably now after the whole Afghanistan thing, the whole thing, the whole fashion is going to change a little bit. Uh, anyways, when this lady who is using one of those earlier Scots fertilizers, when she's fertilizing, 
look at she has slippers on you know these days yeah goes all the way to the end of the lawn on the way back if she does not overlap then she will get something like that and that can easily happen obviously so uh, that's a technique when you fertilize you don't want to wait it's, oh I have five minutes left I can go on fertilize the lawn just go and grab it run all over the place because you can't see any of those uh, granules yeah nothing is going to happen but a week later you're going to see that you know the zebra effect we call it um, so for that reason these days uh, uh, we think that especially for larger areas uh, these machines are probably more appropriate the broadcast applicators you all have seen that those red this is green the whirly birds type you know they broadcast the material and the way they work as you know the material drops into this little propeller which spread the material like that so uh, you, you really don't want to stay within one line and, and it reduces the chance of having that zebra effect although you can do the same thing with these two if you're not careful you know but uh, they're easier to work with if the area is not too large your hands is probably the best applicator that's what I do there's nothing wrong with that these materials are dry they are not unless if you have pesticide in them which I don't recommend you can do it or wear gloves and the best is just take it out and you feel much better you all kind of connect you to the grand grand grandparents you know in the farms and everything you just do it it feels good and do it uniformly but if you are using those be very careful there are some materials in the market namely weed and feed type stuff and other fertilizers with some kind of a pesticide in them uh, if you use those for example if uh, this lady was using that and she gets too close to those areas and some of those get into your flowers vegetables or anything else you have remember most of the herbicides for lawns they work the opposite way for other plants especially if you have a broadleaf killer in your lawn fertilizer it will kill all the broadleaves doesn't say oh no that's a tomato I shouldn't touch that no it doesn't matter they will do that so be aware of, of that fact and uh, make sure you want to stay within that uh, let's see <clears throat> all fertilizers are salt very simple and salt kill grass good equation remember that which means that if you do not apply fertilizers at the rate recommended the time of the you know year that we recommend and, and so on you can easily burn these gra grasses and that happened uh, often I see people and I'm driving my car and I see uh, this guy has his applicator out and he has the fertilizer right on the lawn and he's pouring like 50 pound uh, material on first of all the danger of the spill is very high and then what happens is most as what happened over here you know when you open that little gate in the, at the beginning a lot come down you know and we don't think about it you should be moving when you open that little gate so as soon as you do that whoosh, you get probably 10 pounds per thousand square feet right in that area and then they start moving and you know. it has happened to all of us it happened to me too and some of you know what usually happens when we see something like that we either don't notice it or if we notice what do we, what do, we do I know, we should, what do we do? Not we, we should do. <laughs> Nobody's watching, let's go on, no problem. 
Pretty much like when you spill something on neighbor's uh, carpet. <laughs> you don't do that, but many of us do. Anyway, so it doesn't matter. That thing is not going to go all over the place. They're going to be staying there. Next time you irrigate, that fertilizer is going to dissolve very slowly and gives you a good, thick brine of salt, which is going to kill the grass. And as it's moving, it just kills more grass. Direct effect of salt. If it happens, Obviously, the best thing would be don't feel bad, you know, forget about your ego and everything. You just try to pick up as much of it as you can, and then, yes, flood it with water. Not just a little bit, to wash it off. Uh, better yet, put everything on the, uh, in your machine on the uh, driveway, you know, someplace that you can uh, sweep if, if you have that problem. And then, start moving as soon as you get in the lawn, then open that little gate. So, you don't have a big spill. Now what happens when, when you kill the grass with fertilizer usually is uh, you kill the uh, shoots, leaves and so on. Quite often roots are not affected. So after you have killed the grass, it's going to look bad for a while and then eventually grass is going to green up and then in that area you're going to have these big clumps of green grass for the next 10 years. Which is going to be another problem. Then what do you do? Those of you who have dogs, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Dogs and lawns, that's always uh, something interesting. Anyway, as you probably noticed, dogs, you know, they burn the grass, they urinate, and then the grass dies, and then three weeks later, all of a sudden everything greens up, and you have all this nice green grass. <clears throat> Mowing. Okay. That is the fun part of having a lawn, isn't it? Just like tax and death, you know, it's going to come. Once a week we have to do it. Rain or shine is going to grow. Well, not in that case, obviously, but uh, it's something that, uh, you know, most people uh, like to have a lawn and they just don't want to deal with that. It's a pain. Others like it, like myself. You know, when you mow, when you mow your lawn, see in, the, in, the, in July, in late afternoon, you've mowed the lawn, the smell of that freshly cut grass. It's amazing. Have you noticed? They're looking at me, what are you talking about? It's good. Especially if you have a glass of wine or something, it doesn't get it. Uh, July, Sacramento, maybe not. I'm talking about it. But basically, it's something that some of us like and others don't. And for some of us men, it's one way to show up. We can mow the lawn. Nothing else we can do, we can mow the lawn. Uh, so, however, uh, in order again to have our lawn happy and good looking and everything, we have to do that. Even that one, the correct way. Again, you have the whole booklet on that, on mowing lawn and everything. You can review lots of information. But let's touch on some of the more important aspects of it. <clears throat> Height of cut is the first thing you have to remember. The most important part of having a lawn is at what height you need to cut these grasses. By now, you should know that uh, these grasses are not the same. In fact, the difference physiologically between a bluegrass and Bermuda grass could be as big of a difference as you would see between an apple tree and an orange tree, really. But most of us don't think of it that way because everything is grass. It's just green as grass, it just means the same way. And it may be okay unless you want to have a healthier lawn. And of course, one aspect is to have the right height of cut for them. Uh, you have this table in your, in your handouts. Um, some of these grasses, such as bluegrass, ryegrass, uh, between one and a half to two and a half inches, uh, we recommend 
For tall fescues, about two uh, to three inches. Some of the new dwarf type, you can probably go to one and a half inches, you know, one and a half to three inches. Um, some other grasses, for example, bent grasses, you know, those uh, grasses grown on golf greens around here, they're all bent grasses. They are mowed on a daily basis at three sixteenths of an inch, which obviously require a special mower. I mean, your mower that you and I have in our home does not mow that like that. And, and it just happened that that grass can take that. And that's why they use that grass for golf greens, tennis courts, and things like that. Uh, but the ones that we are using for home lawns, as I mentioned around here, and that is the height of cut you want. Bermuda grasses, half to one inch, really, that is the height of cut you want. You don't want to go lower than those rates because, depending on the species, at very low height of cut, at the bottom, at the lower portion of the grass, <coughs> genetically they don't produce enough chlorophyll, or they do not contain as much chlorophyll at the base of the grass. When you mow the grass very short, you have noticed it's kind of a yellowish. And when you cut that grass that short, it, it shocks the grass. There is not enough, uh, again, chlorophyll, and therefore grass cannot produce <coughs> as much food, and it cannot recover as fast from mowing. Mowing is a, is, is a, um, it's not it's not something grasses are looking forward to, believe it or not. You know, uh, they are not thinking about oh that's so good I'm going to be mowed tomorrow or something. <laughs> they hate it for all. If they were thinking about don't do that because every time you do that they're cutting their limbs. You know, oh don't do that. So you know you know and you want to do it the right way. So make sure you do it. Uh, make sure that afterward they can recover and and that's they stay within it. And if you mow it very high, higher than that, then you lose. Uh, density. The grasses we have for lawns, they are different type of, I mean, wheat and barley cannot, would not make a lawn for you, because if you mow those a couple of times, they will die, although they are annual anyways, but even some of the perennial grasses, if you mow them, the main reason is that if you mow them often, they do not have as much chlorophyll, and they just simply die. Grasses we use for lawn purposes, they have been bred, or genetically are adapted to this. For example, they are primarily from areas of high grazing. So over centuries they have developed that characteristic. Now in these guys, if you let them grow too tall, all the energy will go into making that primary stem longer. And therefore, they will not have to produce more tillers. So your lawn will not look as dense. So you want to stay within, uh, within that uh, range. And that is the height of cut that you set your mower at. Whatever mower you have, the manual will tell you how to uh, uh, set the adjust, uh, adjust the height, okay? And you want to do that. If you do not have the manual or doesn't tell you, the best is that if it's a real mower, and we'll talk about that, you put them on, on a concrete area, on a flat surface, and get your ruler on two sides from the bed knife, that is the flat one at the bottom, and uh, set it at that and uh, uh, tighten the screws. On your rotary mowers, which is, I guess, most of you have those, that is the height from the tip of the blade from the concrete, okay? So you can measure it that way. It's not from the lip of that little hosing, because that is always lower than where the, uh, uh, the blades are, safety factor. How often do we need to mow? That is one of those questions that my answer is very simple. I really don't know. Because the frequency, how often you need to mow the grass, depends on how fast your grass is growing. 
If you're over fertilizing or over watering or the environment is just great for the grass and the grass is growing very fast, you have to mow it more often than your neighbor who may not be doing all those and the grass is growing slowly. We have a rule of thumb in mowing and that is that you should not remove more than one-third of the shoot length after each mowing, okay? Which means that uh, if you have, uh, you know, okay. Which means that if you are, uh, if for example your grass is tall fescue, and you have decided to mow it at two inches, you can allow that grass to grow to a height of three inches, mow it then at two inches, remove one third, which is one inch, and then wait until that next thing happens. Now. I don't expect all of you to go and have a ruler every time you want to measure your lawn or something. Nobody's going to do that. But if you do it at least a couple of times during the season, you would have a fairly good idea of how often that lawn needs to be mowed. Not necessarily because you're going to change your habit of mowing once a week. I'm not going to do that. Just because my grass is growing more, I'm not going to say, okay, last time I mowed it was on Saturday, now it's uh, Thursday afternoon I should do it. Nobody's going to do that. We mow the lawn once a week because the weekend comes at the end of the seven days and that's what most of us do. And then no matter what anybody does. But if you do your measurement and you think you're removing too much grass out, you have to change something else. Maybe you're putting too much water on. Maybe you're putting too much fertilizer on. And accordingly, you, uh, uh, your grass is growing faster. Regardless, that's a rule of thumb. But you don't want to do that. Grass grows exactly. Did you all hear that? I was doing this once and say, yeah, balding. Say no, scalping. People cannot think of the tire. Anyways, you don't want to scalp your lawn because obviously nobody likes to be scalped as grasses are not uh, an exception. If the grass has grown too tall, either because it was raining or the mower was broken or, uh, or I don't know, that. Saturday 49ers were playing or something. I don't know. There's always a reason for that. Uh, you don't want to just come down next week and just shave off the entire grass off because then you don't want to wait another month to mow. Because what happens again at this point you're removing so much of that chlorophyll what you end up with which we call verdure by the way. Clippings is what you remove. Verdure, we have terms for all these things, is what is left afterward. There's not enough chlorophyll there, and therefore the grass, as you see, is kind of a yellow. It's going to take a while. You know, you do that a couple of times, okay, grass is not going to die. But if that is the habit, then gradually what's going to happen is you're going to see all those weeds, different grasses start coming up. And in about two years, it's all weeds. It's not the grass anymore. If for any reason the grass grow that tall, uh, then you probably have to mow a little bit more frequently for two or three times and at each time remove that one-third so gradually you lower the height of cut and as you do that the lower portion of the grass will under ideal conditions develop or produce more uh, more chlorophyll and that will be okay oh what do we do with clippings well believe it or not California, like many other states, is dealing with a crisis. Although it's not as bad as it is as it was, used to be about 10, 5, 10, 6 years ago. 
at least we don't talk about it as much. We are running out of our <coughs> landfills, dumps. We don't have as much place to put our garbage in anymore, or very soon you'll probably run out. In fact, all the studies that has been done shows that within 15 years or so, uh, pretty much all, all our landfills will be full unless we do something about it. And fortunately, we have done something about it. Uh, in fact, about 10 years ago, five or six years ago, uh, when uh, uh, the uh, uh, green waste uh, or solid waste uh, 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 legislature, the bill 939, am I correct, Ken? 939 was passed, which basically requires all the municipalities to reduce their waste by 25% by 95 and you know 50% uh, by year 2000. Uh, that has helped quite a bit. In fact, many municipalities have actually reached that and have done better than that. And whoever hasn't done it, and Ken's office know about that, he works for Indicator Waste Management, you're on their red list or black list, whatever one of those lists. Anyways, I think we have done a very good job. Am I correct? How, how are we doing a statewide, by the way, on that? The about 42% overall. Overall, 42%, we have a. 55, 60, 30, it's kind of okay. That's good, isn't it? Very good. My feeling is that at the beginning, nobody thought we were going to get there. So we have done a very good job, and obviously, we have to continue doing that. And one of those things is grass clippings. Up until a few years ago, a big portion of that used to end up in, in landfills, totally unnecessarily. Those clippings, that's a good resource. There's no reason to throw them out. In fact, uh, we have done studies, and, and we know that a big portion of that is water. Easily 75% or more of clippings is water. Why do you want to carry all this water from this neighborhood all the way to a landfill and put it there? And the rest is what? Dry matter, which is nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and so on and so forth. So, although grass clippings are fantastic for composting, as you all know that, and if you're composting, you know that really you need that, the green material, um, and of course the brown stuff. But what we recommend right now is to, um, if you are not composting, whether at backyard or larger scale, unfortunately most of the green waste these days are being picked up by from our houses and somebody composted. If you don't want to do that, and in fact I recommend uh, you probably go an easier route, uh, that is for other things, is to uh, grass cycle. Uh, I gave all of you a little that brochure about grass cycling. It will tell you everything you ever want to know about grass cycling. We have included information on our um, uh, lawn management uh, leaflet. It's, it's a kind of a sexy term for a very old practice. means that leave the clippings on when you mow. It's nothing new. We didn't invent it or anything like that. In fact, golf courses have been doing that all the time. They do it all the time. They can't afford taking all those clippings out. But it's primarily homeowners, uh, industrial parks, uh, commercial parks, or so on, that people, I don't know why, they always have to remove it. Now we say, leave them on. It's water. Of course, that doesn't really amount to that much, but it's primarily the nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium in it, and they decompose and they basically return the nitrogen to your lawn, and, and it's good. Grass cycling, however, is effective if you do it the right way. If you follow that rule of thumb of not removing more than one-third of the grass clippings from your lawn at each mowing, or better yet, mow frequently enough so after each mowing you don't have a crop of hay on the grass. Now, something like that is not going to be effective grass cycling, and that's not really what we recommend. 
best grass cycling is that you really don't see many clippings afterward, and that comes with uh, um, uh, frequent mowing. If you have something like that, next time you irrigate, all those clippings are going to bunch up, going to hold the moisture for a very long time, smother the grass, cut the light. A few days later, if you remove those clippings, you'll notice that some some of it has lost chlorophyll, as you know, most green plants in dark lose chlorophyll, as you know that. And quite often, if you take some samples, you'll find that some disease organism has taken runs of that damp environment and has infected the grass. So if you, if you can't do grass cycling correctly, well, don't do it at all, really. And if uh, once in a while, for whatever reason, again, because you didn't grow more frequently and so on, and you have lots of clippings, that is the good material for your compost pile. Or you can do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, put some of it in your green waste to go to the composting. But basically, if you can leave them on, that's the best way to deal with at least that part of our uh, solid waste. Mowers. Uh, there are several types of mowers in the market. Um, some of them are a little bit elaborate. Obviously, we don't recommend that. Don't try that at home. It's not a very easy one. But the lawns, uh, in, for home lawns, the main ones that we use are two main categories. One is this type, which is called a real mower. Real mower. Uh, this happened to be a, 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 you know, a golf green type. But the home type, all the push types are the same type. And by the way, that's great. I see so many people are buying these new push types, which are kind of easier to use. Great exercise. If all the people in this country who are paying so much money for those treadmills and all those machines go up and down, hey, throw all those away, buy one of those push-up mowers and mow your own lawn, the effect would be much more noticeable, believe me. <laughs> but no, you know, that's work. That's not exercise, you know, if we don't want to do that. But anyway, those guys are good. If you keep the blades sharp, uh, obviously they are motorized too, I mean you don't have to have the push type. Uh, they do a very good job. They are a little bit more expensive than the rotary ones and adjustments are a little bit more sophisticated and maintenance a little bit uh, 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 more complicated. So for all practical purposes, majority of our homeowners have this type, rotary type, which is that blade that, you know, turns and then, and as long as you keep the blade sharp, they'll give you a very nice cut and uh, that's uh, uh, obviously something that you have. Um, the old types will always have a place that you can put your, you know, the, the, the bag that catches the clippings. But fortunately these days we have mulching mowers or recycling mowers, very, very good ones, very effective ones. And you can always say that that little bag is missing there. Uh, exactly the same <coughs> machine, it just happened that this one recycled or cut the clippings to smaller pieces. I may have a picture. Uh, we have uh, ride-ons too. They have different mechanisms. You know, some of them have little appendages, others have extra blades, doesn't matter. But basically what they do is they mow the grass, they cut those grass clippings to smaller pieces, so therefore they will not show on top of the grass as much, they will decompose and dry up much faster. And also some of them, the better ones, have a mechanism, they actually blow that grass into the turf canopy so they don't stay on the top. So if you are in the market for a new mower, I highly recommend you purchase a recycling or a mulching mower. Now don't, I'm not expecting you tomorrow go and get rid of the mower you already have and buy a new one. Think about the amount of waste that's going to make, you know. Of course Chinese will love you for that because they like all the uh, well, this, this uh, metal, you know. Uh, they can make newer ones. 
But no, if you're in the market, buy a new one. Uh, 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 but mulching more, and uh, they are very effective, and, and uh, uh, you'll be happy in the grass. What is wrong with that picture? The wheels came off from that. I don't know why I have that one. <laughs> have you ever seen a mower with no wheels? <laughs> that one, I don't know. Well, believe it or not, there is a mower with no wheels. Fly mower. Some of you may have heard the term. And there are a few other ones. Uh, these mowers are actually for special areas. You know, areas when you can't have wheels, because wheels will get caught in those mud. Uh, I don't recommend it for homeowners, they're a little bit more difficult to maneuver. But when it's down, it basically works like the hovercrafts, you know. It actually makes, the, as the uh, blade turns, it just floats the, the mower on top of the grass and you don't really need the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, wheels. And it is fantastic for areas hard to cut something like that. But for a home lawn, uh, it could be dangerous. Uh, sometimes it may easily come on top of your foot or something. So uh, the reason I show that is that don't buy one of those for a home lawn. I don't think they're, they're safe enough. Uh, technique, same thing. Do it fairly, equitably, and uniformly. Treat them all fairly. That's all you want to do. Few other things uh, on slopes. Again, these are some safety issues. That's what I'm talking about. I've seen people. They have a lawn, and you know, they push up, go up, and then they run behind the mower coming down. It's dangerous, you know. The best way to mow the lawn, especially if you have a slope, is across the slope, not up and down. Now, I don't want to get too fancy <laughs> because then it gets. Uh, <laughs> That is, the technique is okay as far as mowing the lawn, but that is not safe. Don't do that. Um, in fact, the reason I show that always is that if the area is so steep, you shouldn't have a lawn there. That's very simple. Although this is a, it's not really a, a home lawn. Uh, but uh, uh, basically is that again, if you have a very steep slope, plant something else. It's too difficult to maintain. Water is not getting into the soil. Fertilizer runs off. Managing is very hard. Why bother? Put something else there and have your lawn in the rest of the area. In very slopey areas, scalping can be a problem. You know, these mowers, depending on how large they are, they will scalp them. So maybe in that area, it's very simple. Just raise your height of cut half an inch or so. Everything is going to be a little bit half an inch long, but at least you won't have this scalped area. Or mow more frequently. Well, this was a very interesting one. A um, few years ago, I was at this uh, very high caliber uh, uh, scientific meeting, uh, we had gone actually to see that uh, Ziegfeld and Roy in Las Vegas. <laughs> but anyways, uh, and uh, of course my friends, uh, you know, after the meeting was over and I'm not into gambling or so on, and everybody was just putting their money on that uh, casinos, and, and I just took my camera and started walking around and see what's going on in Las Vegas. This is just one block uh, uh, this side of uh, Strip, which is where the casinos are. There's a water park, some of you have been in Las Vegas in a way it is. So I was walking and taking pictures of different things. Of course, everybody would see me and think the guy is crazy or something. Or maybe he has been doing something. Or <laughs> taking pictures. But I saw this one, which is very interesting. And I always talk about that because uh, I just like people who think. Uh, this is a, a parking lot over there, obviously. And as you know, in Las Vegas, like many other desert areas, although they don't get much rain, but once in a while they have this very intensive rain for a short period of time that causes flooding. You know. 
and uh, during the, in the city you probably have seen lots of these flood control channels made. So they had all this street or parking lot and they had very nice flood control channels coming from every which way which would bring the water to the swale and everything would go down to a drain and someplace, I don't know where. And of course, again, that is one of the advantages of grasses. Because grass is, can hold the soil in place, also grass can keep many of these sediments and pollutants in place instead of allowing that to move into a lake or something like that. So in most places they have grasses growing in order to reduce the movement of water and as the water flow slows down, some of that sediment settled down here doesn't end up in a lake or a river or whatever. And accordingly, some of the pollutants, nitrogen, phosphorus, and so that's the story there. But what I noticed was that whoever is maintaining that lawn was doing something very interesting. Do you see these little patches of grass, the clumps you see there? Yeah. Uh, uh, anybody can tell me what, what uh, those are? I mean, I, I was interested because it made everything look a little bit... Uh, Bitter. It wasn't as boring looking uh, type of a street. I'm sorry? Didn't you mow crosshatch like they do on the baseball diamond? Uh, uh, you mean in terms of the. Well, he did, but this area is actually taller grass. These are bunches of grasses, which uh, uh, made everything look a little bit more interesting instead of just flat. Uh, any idea why he was doing that? Just for fun or just better looking? Trap more sediments, so basically you have different things. Yeah, there, there's, there's actually some truth to that. And, and I thought maybe he was doing it that way. But I thought, well, if he was doing it that way, they could have used like a strip, strip, strip that way. In fact, uh, that is one thing that we are doing in golf courses. Uh, we call them buffer zone. From the grass to the lake, we change the height of grass to slow down the movement. To help to direct the water, which means that the water comes over here, have a channel going like that. Why? We're just going to go there. No, I'm not, you know, I, that's good. Uh, well, the grass itself does the erosion control anyways. Why does he have to? I thought about that, and I thought about that, and you know what? I think, I never saw the guy or gal for that matter to see what he's doing. It. I, I found out why he was doing it. And that was, that's why I always talk about as a tribute to that unknown person who has been a thinker. He would come and mow the lawn at, say, four inches one day, one week. Next week, or next two weeks, whenever it was, he would come and, and mow strips of lawn at three inches or two inches. So you see, every other week, he would mow shorter or higher for that matter. And I did a quick mathematics thing, and I found out that every other week, he or she saves about 50% less time on mowing that lawn. Because the next time when he comes, he actually skip one row of mowing. So the effect was actually interesting. It looks okay. It looks actually nicer than just a flat one. It gives you some visual effect. At the same time, it was saving 50% every other time, so about uh, one-third time on mowing. Pretty impressive. It would be impressive anywhere but in Las Vegas, because that time, that guy was sitting in that building and putting that coin. <laughs> <laughs> any questions on mowing or anything else, uh, which uh, some of you may be... Uh, yes? Yes. 
Uh, the question is, uh, does it matter with, uh, if you uh, whether to, to mow the lawn in one direction every week or change the direction? Uh, it is always better to change the direction. Uh, several reasons. Number one, if you go on the same path all the time, your mower tire will actually compact the soil and very soon you'll see this little uh, alleyways, you know, or, or ruts, you know. You don't want to do that. Secondly, if you're going the same way, after you mow the grass, the, the grass would lay one way or another and you will uh, eventually, you will not get as much of a cut because the grass is just going to be laying pretty much like hairs for that matter and therefore you won't get as clean of a cut. Uh, so altogether it's always better to change your directions every which way, you know, this way, that way, or an angle or something. It's much better. Yes? Uh, in a swale like that, I have several swales like that, these, these seasonal creeks that go through, yes. one of which is now mostly year-round. <clears throat> and so it just makes a sopping wet mess going through. Um, but it's a, it's a floodway. Yes. Is there a particular kind of grass that you can uh, grow in those kinds of areas that will leave it looking more like a natural creek bed or something, and you know, be better adapted to the um, that the wet condition or something? Yeah. Well, the uh, I, I don't know about all plants, so you know, you yeah. definitely want to check with your local nursery because there are some water-loving plants, uh, uh, there are some rushes and things right, like that right. that you can include. But among these grasses, if you're going to be mowing it, uh, tall fescue is actually a good choice. Because tall fescue is interesting, although it is the most heat tolerant and drought tolerant of all the cool season grasses, if the water is available, it can actually extract more water from the soil and transpire more. So it will actually use more water if the water is available. And if it's not available, it's more drought tolerant, say bluegrass. And you can mow it taller too. Uh, but remember, it's not going to be enough to dry up the whole soil, you know, just a little bit more. But uh, you can definitely uh, do very interesting gardening, uh, wetland gardening. And uh, there are quite a few books available and some of these new water-loving plants from nursery. But among grasses, I think tall fescue would be the best choice for a condition like that. Can tell, does tall fescue, if you leave it to go long, look attractive like the pine fescue usually? Uh, no. Because what happens, then it will look like, uh, you know, many of these grasses on the hills that they are not mowed. Oh, okay. it, you know, it's, it's very open, kind of a grayish looking. Um, but in a situation like that, you want it to look natural anyways. Plant some of that hard fescue, by the way, too, with it. Mix yeah, them together. Yeah, and that would, uh, that would do okay. okay. Thatch. Uh, thatch is one of those things which uh, kind of unique to turf grasses, although you can have thatch and ivy and almost all other ground covers. But in terms of management, uh, in most cases, we talk about thatch only in lawn management. Uh, in other ground covers, uh, like ivy and others, you have a thatch, and the only reason you talk about it is if, if uh, the thatch is harboring uh, rodents of different type. Uh, but on turf grasses, we talk about this because it can have a major impact on how successful you are in maintaining a healthy uh, lawn. First of all, let's find out what thatch is. In case you didn't know that, thatch is a layer of organic matter, dead or dying organic matter, which develops right between the soil surface 
and the green portion of the grass. It is consisted of primarily of roots, stems, uh, rhizomes, and stolons. Some leaves, but not much. It's primarily the lignin-containing plant parts which contribute to thatch. And lignin, in case you're not familiar with the term, basically is wood. You know, lignin, wood, the woody part of the plant. And that will be again the stems, rhizomes, so on and so forth. Leaves, as long as you don't have that much clippings like crop of hay on top, if you mow frequently, leaves do not contribute to thatch that much. Now, uh, up to a certain thickness, thatch is fine. In fact, we want to have about a quarter to half an inch of thatch. It gives some resiliency to the lawn, makes it softer to walk on under extreme temperature conditions, too high or too low temperature. It kind of moderates or insulates the soil a little bit to some extent. And altogether, it's fine. But in most cases, if you have more than about half an inch of thatch, then you can run into uh, uh, problems. Uh, and that is, I'm pretty sure those of you who have dealt with lawn and you know have dug some lawn and everything, you have noticed that kind of a brownish material, which is right uh, kind of a, like a sponge, right uh, below the uh, green portion of the grass. The main problem we run into when we have a thick thatch layer is interference with normal water movement into, through, and the reverse from and into, into and from the soil. Uh, when, you are, when you have a, a thatch layer, very much like if you have a, um, a sponge or any time in fact you have two different uh, texture type of uh, medium or media, uh, whether it's soil on top of sand, sand on top of soil, organic matter in this case thatch, lots of it, they interfere with water movement because when you apply water to the top layer, uh, if you don't have that layering, if you have just the soil, and it could be any soil, it could be clay soil, loam soil, sandy soil, as long as it's kind of a uniform texture, you apply water to the soil, it goes down at various rates, speed, depending on the texture. Some of it eventually drains out, the rest of it comes back up into the soil, from the soil, due to a process which is called, what? No, evapotranspiration would be the, evaporation would be the end result. But while water moves up in the soil, <laughs> read my lips. Cap, cap. You knew it. You knew it. You just need a little push. Capillary reaction. Capillary reaction, which is caused by adhesion, cohesion, all those things. So don't get too technical. But basically, it wicks up. It's a weak action, or capillary action. It is stronger in clay soil than in the sandy soil. But eventually some water will come up, and then when it comes to the surface, then it goes up through evaporation or transmission to plants. So there's a very nice movement up and down. Unfortunately, however, that thing changes when you have a totally different type of a layer uh, on top of another layer. In this case, thatch. You apply water to the thatch, it goes down through the thatch, but it when it hits this interface, between thatch and the soil, it stops there. It doesn't go right through. Even if you have sand there, even if you have gravel, it will not go through. Sometimes hard to believe, but that's the case. It will stay there until that top layer is totally saturated. At that point, the hydraulic conductivity of that water in the thatch is high enough. 
In other words, water is heavy enough to push it through. And you can imagine having an inch of thatch, like having an inch of a sponge, those of us who wash dishes still with a sponge, we know, can hold lots of water. So you may be applying 30 minutes of water, you know, based on that brochure, but all of it is going to stay in the thatch area. Very small amount is going to move into the soil below. And that's where all the roots are, or they should be. And if you have a big thick thatch layer, quite often you may not send enough water to the soil, the roots here will die, and everything will be growing the thatch, which is a kind of a synthetic medium. All the roots are there. On top of that, the thatch is going to stay moist for a very long time. It doesn't lose moisture and creates a very nice damp environment again for what? Diseases, fungi. I would say, especially on bluegrass, bluegrass lawns, eight out of ten diseases I notice when I look at the profile, I notice there is a thick thatch layer present. So that needs to be uh, dealt with, obviously. Uh, Anyone can guess what that picture uh, shows? Uh, so you think it's a lawn after it has been detached? It's a lawn that has been cored and they have not removed the cores. Some of it is the light doesn't show it. It's, it's uniform. There's nothing on the surface. Uh, traffic, effect of traffic. Okay, I'm going to give you a hint. That is, those of you who play golf or you know golf, that's a tee area where you tee off. I have lots of this when I play golf. This is the grass which has not been, or either the soil is probably too compacted and is not responding to nitrogen. In that case, actually, because there was a thatch layer. Sometimes some of these, especially a slow release fertilizers, you put on, they are tied up in the thatch area. They don't get down or they don't get fast enough to the right areas the plant can pick them up. But areas where we have dethatched, but taking those divots out, after fertility, they respond very quickly. That's another reason we don't want to have too much thatch because not only fertilizers, but also pesticides. If you are applying any insecticide, fungicide, or herbicide, or anything like that, they can actually, the thatch can hold up to those materials and they may not affect the grass as much. The other thing regarding thatch is that most of the insects, either that cause damage to grass in California, they either live below the thatch or within the thatch. Those soil inhabiting ones, like uh, white grubs and bilbug grub, uh, having a thick thatch layer, insecticides, if you are applying, may not, may not uh, be adequate or you may not apply enough of it to pass through the thatch layer and get where they are to do any damage to them. That's one reason when we have bilbug grub or white grub, the first thing I'd recommend people to do is dethatching. And then others like uh, cutworm, armyworm, sodwellworm, they actually live within the thatch. During the day, they live in the thatch. It's cold, it's cool, damp, dark. And at night, they crawl up, feed on the leaves, and they go down. So if you remove the thatch, in a way, you have changed their habit, habitat, and they will not be uh, as effective. 
How many of you have tried to pull the thatch out using those rakes that, that is like that or other, they call them thatch rakes? Yes. Have you? Yeah. Did you take much out? No. Oh, yeah. If you did, that's not thatch. Let's put it this way. If you take something out, that is not thatch. That's not one. That is just loose leaves and everything. The actual thatch, you pretty much have to be a Hercules or something to move much of it out. And unfortunately, even if you take some out, you're pulling so much grass out, you're just ruining the grass. So I would not recommend those little, you know. There's a machine which is called a de-thatcher, or a verticutter. You can rent from rental places. You don't need to buy one of those, by the way. We have enough stuff in our houses. Rent one of those. Uh, it works like a mower. It just happened that the blades are actually vertically driven instead of horizontal. If you look at the bottom of those, you'll notice the blades like that. And they come on different shapes, different sizes, different type of blades. Uh, that, as that moves forward, it cuts through and brings the thatch up on the surface. And of course, you have to uh, break those out and throw them away. If you are dealing with Bermuda grass or Kentucky bluegrass and you are composting those things, guess what? You probably ought to spread them all over the place. So, uh, because most of those are the stolons and rhizomes. Um, some of the grasses that we talked about that I don't recommend for home lawns is because they are heavy thatch producers. This was a fancy development in the East Bay area. Uh, that problem with this lawn, and of course, we got involved, and they say, no, no matter what we do, we have disease problems, it's always wet, and no matter how much fungicide we apply, nothing happens. And uh, we went and looked, and of course, they had some disease problem. They had about four inches of thatch growing. That's why we don't recommend bent grasses for home lawns. They have a special place for most of the lawns like that. We can't mow them fast enough to, to, to basically uh, uh, keep that thatch development low. Oh, this was another one. That's kind of interesting. A few years ago, there's another condominium fancy development in Emeryville area. They called me up and said, well, we have this. And the area is very expensive and good landscaping. But the lawns were not doing so well. And these lawns were kind of islands all over the place. And they said that no matter what we do, they're always wet. Uh, we have to spray them with fungicide. Uh, nobody likes to walk on them. It's just a mess. What can we do? Of course, I went there and found out that that was creeping bent grass. And that's the grass, as I mentioned, we use for what? Golf greens? They're mowed three sixteenths of an inch every day. You know, even then they can produce thatch. But here, they were maintaining them as a home lawn. Probably because whoever they hired to maintain that, which was probably on a bidding process, some cheap architect from Vermont or someplace, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have anything against Vermont, by the way, I just an example. From far away, not familiar with our conditions, who had heard that, yes, creeping bent grass is a little bit more salt tolerant. And this place is close to the bay. That'll be good grass to grow there. They plant them, and most of the gardeners, they're not familiar with that. So they're just maintained like bluegrass and tall fescue after three years with that much thatch. Obviously, it's going to stay wet all the time. I don't want to go and lie on that grass. It's wet all the time. It smells. And of course, disease and everything. So uh, obviously, they didn't like to hear what I had to tell them because <laughs> take them all out, go something else. The good thing was that the gardener had a good sense of humor. 
I love this industry. Everybody has a good sense of humor. They say, well, I can't. People hate me for it. They don't want to walk on it. They don't want to, they don't want to even look at me because of my lawn. So the least I can do every time I mow, I put a different pattern on it. So at least when they, there was a high rise next to it. When they look down, they just see something pretty. So today was heart shape. Maybe it was close to Valentine. I don't know. Well, believe it or not, there's a new disease called mower blight. And mower blight can do so much damage to all the trees. And I always mention that. And that one, that's the same tree, by the way. Obviously, people are not paying attention. And this is just thinking, you know. Those barks, even in the large trees, are very sensitive. And sometimes I go to parks and other places, and I see this guy is driving a tank, going, and he's so concerned to get as close as possible to that tree. Because to get an inch of that is, you know, did you see that? I didn't leave a blade of grass. Big deal. In the meantime, kill the grass. So um, next time you see something like that, call the police. That guy is a criminal. <laughs> no, no, be careful. Uh, basically, what we recommend, especially in home lawn landscapes, uh, don't get that close. I know some of these weed eaters are much better, you know, unless, unless the plant is very, very new. They can get very close or use the walk behinds. Better yet, leave some of that grass just grow a little bit taller, you know. Worst, you know, the, the best thing you can do is just uh, uh, prevent. That grass can be redone very quickly. Even if it dies, you just see it. But that tree uh, is not that simple. How many of you have used those uh, weed, uh, weed cutters, by the way? Easy to work with, you know. Be careful, however, you know, sometimes uh, they get a... So... Uh, for grass. Can you imagine? If that's you, I've had a couple of beers, you do that, your wife comes... You did what? <laughs> Questions on thatch. Um, is there... Is there a time period on an average backyard lawn? For thatch. Good question. Timing for thatching. Again, you want to do that when the grass can recover from that injury as fast as possible. And that coincides with, again, the fall and the spring for cool season grasses, as I mentioned earlier, like the same time you fertilize. In fact, you can do your dethatching and your fertilization afterward. And uh, for warm season grasses, Bermuda grass, again, I think uh, fall would be a good time to do it. It, because it can recover. But that reminds me of something else uh, that I forgot to mention. Fortunately, thatch is not as much of a problem for us now as it was 10 years ago. For a very good reason. And that is that tall fescue, that God sent thing to us in California, does not produce as much thatch as other grasses. So if you have all tall fescue, for all practical purposes, you may not need to dethatch at all. Unless you have been over fertilizing or something. Most tall fescues will not produce uh, that much thatch to require dethatching. But if you have Bermuda grass and bluegrass, those two especially, and of course zoysia grass, um, then dethatching is important. If it's all tall fescue, fortunately, it's not an issue. And the best way you can find out is to go and get your shovel and take some plant out like that and look at the side and like this one for example doesn't have any thatch at all and this is Bermuda grass don't worry about it so that's a good thing I'm glad you mentioned it because that reminded me of that yes sir the kind of uh, retrofit kits that they uh, yeah some of you may have seen in the market there are these kits that you can buy 
and attach it to your uh, uh, rotary mower and usually kind of a two prongs at the end and uh, you know I uh, I have a hard time uh, 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 I'm not comfortable recommending those the reason is that most of those mowers were not designed remember mower blade the friction you get from cutting a blade of grass is different than trying to push those things out and if you have done it once you know the amount of uh, power required to do that unless the manufacturer actually recommends that for their machine whatever brand is you buy a new one and they say okay you can install this kit and it would work uh, which obviously I assume that they have done the research and the engine can take that um, I will not do that to my mower because with a very good chance I may burn the whole engine it's just or just the thing won't turn depending on how much thatch you have so I, I, uh, I'm not comfortable recommending those if you have it, you have done it and you're comfortable then hey who cares what I think you know that's different story okay let's go to one last one and that is aeration aeration I know by the end of the day you would save that much work I'm gonna get rid of the lawn I already have <laughs> who cares about that thing why am I gonna do that? <laughs> that's right yeah it's much easier that's right just spray it uh, but anyways aeration uh, plant grasses like all other plants they need water we know that they need fertilizer food we know that but they also need oxygen like all other organisms it's very simple and that oxygen is needed above ground as well as in the ground underground why I mean if they can get the oxygen from the air why do they need to have it in the soil I mean you and I we have a mouth you know if you had another hole somewhere on here we could get the oxygen would it make any difference no why do they have to have oxygen in the roots any idea in fact that's pretty much all plants really it's not only grasses somebody says root something respiration yeah it leaves good okay it's good all in addition to the shoots roots also do respiration that's why they need oxygen in the soil and when the oxygen amount in the soil or oxygen diffusion rate is a slow plants are under stress grasses trees shrubs it doesn't make that much of a difference a good example is that if you have a long-term flooding some of those orchards around here as you know plants will die most of it is lack of oxygen now in grasses that is a major problem because by design we have lawns to walk on to have activities on very few lawns are for ornamental purposes and it is a perennial surface you don't have annual tilling or plowing to fluff up the soil grass is always there and that traffic pushes the soil particles together compact the soil there is not enough oxygen in the soil and roots need respiration because it is respiration that takes the oxygen and that oxygen oxidizes or burns the food in the roots and that produces energy and that energy is being used to absorb more nutrients when you have enough oxygen there's no respiration roots are wilting they're not functioning plants cannot pick up the nitrogen which you have applied in fact you see that quite often especially on sports fields where all this gladiator come and do all the activities on it uh, and of course when what happens is that the soil is compacted 
whether they are big gladiators or little ones, male, female, it doesn't make much of a difference. They compact the soil and uh, is not. And of course, when the soil is compacted, water does not get in, air does not get in, and if those two are not going in, obviously nutrient is not in, and eventually grass uh, suffers and goes down. Uh, since we cannot do what most farmers and orchardists and other landscapers do, which is you can go and plant, till the soil and add organic matter every year and fluff up the soil and get them ready. Uh, well, we can do that, but not many people want to do that to their lawn every year. We have other systems to deal with that. We aerify the soil. And there are at least two dozen different methods to do it. At least, maybe more. Simply, you can slice them. There's a machine called a slicer. You go through the lawn and make these long slices, grooves into the lawn, and they allow for water movement and so on in the lawn. And the disruption is very low. But most effective way, especially for home lawns, is what we do, uh, uh, we call core aeration. Again, there are probably a dozen different type of machine that they make a special kind of a coring. Principle is the same. They have these hollow times, some of them solid, that as the machine goes forward, those cores go down into the soil, and they remove these cores of soil out, leave them on the surface, and of course each one of those channels allow air and water movement into the soil. The more traffic you have, the more compaction you'll have, and the more airification you have to do. Okay? Uh, it has to be a part of an effective management program. In a home situation, your front lawn probably will never need aeration at all, because most front lawns don't get much traffic, only when you're mowing, and that's, that's, it's not a big deal. A backyard lawn, depending on how many kids you have, how many dogs you have, and how many games of volleyball you do every week, and how many barbecues you have, you know, depending on how much you use it, then you may have to do aeration to constantly relieve that compaction. And it has to be a part of the management while the grass is healthy. And most people don't do that. They always wait until the grass is almost dead. Uh, not up at this point is okay. But when you get to this point, a little bit too late. You know, there's not uh, much to do. Or sometimes I get called from friends, Ali, you told us air fire, and then they're talking about parks. Nothing happened. Of course nothing is going to happen. There's one grass here, one grass there. Everything else is dead. Just because you have a little hole here, quarter of an inch deep, <laughs> as though tomorrow everything is going to magically green up. It's not going to happen. Dead is dead. It's gone. I mean, it's not going to come up. So, I mean, don't wait until things are gone. I will be terrified. Nothing happened. At that time, do what farmers do, and it's going to be very effective. Kill everything, till them all up, add organic matter, reseed or resell. Sometimes I go to uh, parks or other places, you know and they do aeration. You know most of the park systems and for those park friends who may hear this, I'm just saying this as a joke, please don't get mad at me. <laughs> at about 2.30 or something, uh, I see this guy driving this tractor at like 30-40 miles an hour and that air fire is just jumping up and down, going all over the place and everything. We are air firing, you know, he's not even looking because at 2 o'clock he's going to leave or something. You go and look at those holes, there's this big hole, basically like divots in, on T's, you know. All we are doing there is making nice, beautiful seed beds for all those weed seeds. They love them for that. <laughs> Do it again. Uh, anyways, I hope what I have to share with you would uh, help you to be uh, a little bit more uh, friendly to your lawns, uh, gentler, and uh, be a little bit more positive, uh, spend a little bit more time 
uh, and hopefully you will have a good stand of grass for you, for your neighbors, and uh, that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you. The preceding program was part two of two parts, each 90 minutes long. There is support material available at this website, including quizzes, handouts, and lecture outlines for all presentations. Consult the UCTV programming guide for the date and time that other lectures in the series will be shown. It's the Definitive Guide to Gardening, produced by the University of California. The California Master Garden Handbook contains over 700 pages of in-depth information on topics such as soil, fertilizer and water management, plant propagation, weeds and pests, lawn care, landscape design, home vegetable gardening, and the wide variety of garden crops that are grown in the Golden State. The chapters in this handbook provide helpful information on selecting varieties, planting, growth cycles, pruning, irrigation, and harvesting. The California Master Gardener Handbook is available along with other gardening publications on the A&R Catalog website at anrcatalog.ucdavis.edu.